Hi, and welcome to Yokine Baptist Church. This is a sermon recording taken from one of our regular church services. You can find out more about us as well as more recordings like this one on our website, yokinebaptist.church, or by connecting with us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you're encouraged by this message and that it draws you closer to God. G'day to those who might be out there watching us uh, streaming, those that aren't well or are worried about their health or just got caught in the rain. Um, This morning we're going to, um, we're actually covering like three whole chapters of Scripture, so it's going to be kind of a quick overview of chapters three to five, and uh, I encourage you, uh, if you haven't already done so, to read the whole three chapters so you get the whole context of, of what's happening there. Um, oh, I've got nothing up there, that's why. All right, let me just give you a little bit of a background. Here we go. This is, uh, this is the land of Israel, and uh, you can see up here you've got the Sea of Galilee, and this is our Jordan River. It's, what do they say, it's about 60 miles, 60 miles uh, from, you know, coast to coast, but because it's so windy and hilly, it's about 200 miles actually long. And during most of the, um, most of the year, and you can see here, this is where, so the Israelites have come out from the wilderness, they've gone and taken control over this Transjordan area where they've beaten the kings, and... Um, if you read the scripture, there's some wonderful words that the deaf can't translate, like the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the <laughs> that even try, <laughs> and all of those kind of people all over on this side of the Jordan. And now they're camped here at the Jordan opposite Jericho. And there's only about 10 kilometers between Jordan and the river. Now, it's a fairly wide valley, but the river itself is actually fairly small. Now, this is a modern view of the river. It's, it was a little bit bigger than that before, but the, uh, the Israelis have built a dam up here on the Sea of Galilee, so the, the river's quite small now. Um, but even back then, it was only about 30 or 40 metres wide, and it was fairly shallow. But in early April it became a raging torrent because you had snows coming down from the mountains, you had all the spring rains, um, and it was, it was deep, it was fast, and it was about a mile wide or a kilometre wide. So it was, it was huge at that point. So, you know, when the Israelites, you know, when they were, when they were on that other side, it might have looked like a very small obstacle in the past, but it became a very big obstacle by the time they got there. Now, Israel has had about a week where they're camped, sitting at this spot, waiting to cross. So firstly, we've got the story we had last week about the spies going out, right? And they they were gone for at least three days. And then the Israelites marched and they got to the edge of the Jordan and they stopped. And they must have looked at this place and they thought, how are we going to get over there? We've got women and children and donkeys and carts and weapons and all of our, good, all of our worldly supplies. How are we going to get across that raging torrent? And then Joshua makes the people sit there 
and camp with no instructions for three days. So for three days they had to sit and look at this obstacle and go, what are we going to do? How in the world are we going to make this? You know, by the time Moses led the people across the Red Sea, they already knew him as a mighty miracle worker. You know, and Moses, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd conquered all of Egypt, you know. And here he goes, he stands on a rock, he holds out his staff and the sea parts, and then the people go, wow, this is awesome, and they cross on dry land. But Moses is dead. He's gone now. Joshua's in charge. Uh, in fact, the whole generation of people who crossed with Moses, all the adults, they're all dead too. The only two people of that generation who are left are Joshua and Caleb. So they are literally the oldest people there and the only ones that were adults when that miracle happened. Uh, and of course, who's this guy Joshua? He's never performed a miracle before. He's not, he hasn't got Moses' staff. What's he going to do? How are we going to cross this river? And so all they've got to go on is their memories of children of what God did in the past. Now this time, God does a, a significant difference. Instead of Moses going out there and raising his staff, this time he sends out the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see a, an image of what the Ark might have looked like now. And Moses had the people of Israel build this when they were camped at Mount Sinai. And it's a, it's a wooden chest, it's coated in gold, it's got angels on the top, it's, uh, and it had the, had the Ten Commandments on the inside. Uh, and it was also the place where, as they wandered through the wilderness, every time they stopped to camp, the image of God would come down and rest at the Ark of the Covenant. So they knew that thing as the place of God's presence. And so this time, it wasn't going to be Moses, it wasn't going to be a military leader who led them across. This time, it was going to be the Ark of God with the priests carrying it who were going to lead the miracle. And the other thing that these guys had to do was, unlike the time of Moses, they didn't wait all night for the ground to be dry before they crossed. They had to cross that raging river, that thing there, and they had to actually get down, step into the water, and until they were in the water, it wasn't then, until then, that the, that the water slowed down and eventually stopped. Now, we know the rest of the story at this point is that there was some kind of a, an earthquake or a landslide about 30 kilometres away upriver that blocked the river, and they were able to get through on dry land. But there's an important thing we need to note about this miracle and the reason why it happened. You see, back then, people thought of their gods as being very local deities. You know, it was the god just of this area. It was the god who just looked after this small portion. Uh, and here, uh, and, and that's why people could have multiple gods. It wasn't a contradiction in terms for them because they didn't look at God the way we look at God. They looked at them as being these very small, very local, very specific gods. You know, a god that does this, a god that looks after my crops or a god that looks after my rain or whatever. You know, very, very small gods. So they could have lots and lots of gods and they saw no contradiction. But this miracle showed that the God of Israel was the God of the whole earth. 
See, their God wasn't just this little God stuck out there in the desert, you know, in a tent in the wilderness. Their God is a God that is going to cross over into this whole new land and take over this whole new land. Their God is something different. Their God is not something they left behind in the wilderness of Sinai and then come back and then, you know, discover some new gods when they get to Canaan. No, no, their God is bigger than that. Their God is coming with them. Their God is the God of the whole earth. And so when Joshua describes the ark, he says it like this. He says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. See, so that's a very significant message that Joshua is giving the people there. Now, the people of Canaan received the same, although opposite message. You see, they worshipped a god called Baal. And Baal was a god uh, of water. He was the god of the river and of the storms. And you see a statue of, uh, of Baal there. This is, the, this is what they worshipped. And often, see, his raised fist there. Often he would have a lightning bolt in his hand, right? Because he was the god of the water. And so the Jordan River for them was a manifestation of their god Baal. And when the river was at flood at that time of year, well, that was the proof that their God was protecting them. There's no way Israel's getting across here. Our God is protecting us. Look at that river. They're not getting across that. Not for months, not until the, the, the next season comes. Baal has seen to that. Israel's stuck there. But this miracle showed them that Baal faced a much more powerful God. And we read of their reaction a little bit later on. Um, it says that uh, when they heard how Yahweh had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So that's the first message we get from this, this miracle about this God. This Suddenly there is this new God in the territory and he's not just a local deity. He's an all-powerful, earth-encompassing God. Now, the Canaanites didn't originally send out armies to meet the Israelites. You see, they didn't need to because Baal was protecting them by having the river in flood. Uh, and what was the point? You know, so they didn't really need to send out their armies. You know, they could sit safely behind their walled city in comfort and peace, uh, send a couple of spies out just to keep an eye on what Israel's doing, but we'll be fine, we'll be protected. But now, all of a sudden, in this incredible miracle that no one was prepared for, suddenly the Israelites are across the river. They're there. They're less than 10 kilometers away from Jericho. They can see the city from where they are. And I mean, if the Israelites want to, they could be surrounding that city and ensieging them by lunchtime. And so the Canaanites were really caught on the back foot. And so, but, so they could have. They could have, they could have had the whole city under siege. But God stopped and made them do two very interesting things. The first thing they did was that God had all the men circumcised. Right? So remember, all the men of Moses' generation had been circumcised, but none of the children had. And so now you have tens of thousands of men all needing to be circumcised. Now, that would have been an awesome opportunity for the Canaanites to attack. But they were afraid. 
They had seen their God defeated before their eyes, and so they were too afraid to get out there. But the other thing that the Israelites stopped and did was they built a monument. Building a monument is like planting a flag. You know, you remember the moon landing? Some of you might remember the moon landing. Uh, Some of us were only three years old at the time, so I'm not as old as some of you. Um, But, of course, we've all seen the footage, and they planted the, the flag on the moon unless you believe the conspiracy theories, of course. Uh, And, you know, that was a statement. You know, that was a statement, we are first, we are here. Well, God got them not to plant a flag, but to build a monument. See, because a flag is temporary. A flag is a piece of cloth that can fade away. But a big, giant pile of rocks, a monument, that's going to stand for a while. And so God is just not in a hurry. He's not in any kind of hurry at all. So the priests are standing there in the water, you know, or not in the water, in the river, in the middle of the river, on dry land. Everyone has crossed over. And it's like, now what? Okay, let's go. No, no, God says, no, no, priests, you stay there. Stay there. You keep showing the people your faith. And they stood there. And one by one, the Israelites came out and they went out in the middle of the river and they picked up the biggest rocks they could find, carried them back to their camp in order to make this monument. And it wasn't until after they had done that that the priests then climbed out of the river that then the river started to flow again. So God's not in a hurry here. God gets them to build this monument. Now, monuments have been in the news a bit lately. I'll just show you a little bit of footage about what's happening with monuments in the United States. Thanks. Now, if you've been watching the news from the United States at all, you've seen that kind of thing happening. You've seen that the United States uh, are going through a time of great upheaval. Um, And, you see, monuments generate a lot of passion. People get passionate about them. Uh, You've seen people, you've seen neo-Nazis with their flags marching in the street to protest, pulling down flags. And, of course, you've got anti-racism protesters pulling down these monuments. So there's a real conflict going on there. But monuments generate a lot of passage because monuments send a message. See, some of the monuments that are causing outrage in the United States were not constructed after the Civil War. Remember, the Civil War ended 150 years ago. It was back in 1865 the Civil War ended. And it wasn't in the 1860s and 1870s that they were putting up statues to Robert E. Lee and their alleged Confederate heroes and whatever. That didn't happen. Right? Because those guys were traitors. They got, those guys fought against the United States. There was no interest in that time of honouring any of those guys. But in the 1950s and 1960s, there was what was called the um, Civil Rights Movement. And you might have heard of Martin Luther King Jr. And all of a sudden, black people in America were starting to get rights, were starting to be allowed to have privileges that had been reserved for white people. Segregation was being knocked down. And because of the reaction against this, particularly in the southern states, they started putting up all of these Confederate statues. That's when they started doing it. They were sending a very, very clear message. And the message was, you might think you're getting some rights now, but we whites are still in charge. We are still superior. And that's a message that they were sending. Statues, monuments, all send a message. I've noticed that, you know, one or two people are starting to say, oh, we should tear down, you know, sort of any, any statues of white Jesus. 
And, you know, there's no reason, you know, Jesus wasn't a racist or anything, but I understand if you look at, photo, if you look at paintings of Jesus, how many paintings of Jesus look white? You know? How many paintings of Jesus look like he actually did? You know, like a Palestinian, Israeli, olive-skinned, you know, none of them, boy, they all look white. And that sends a message to some people that, you know, Jesus is like us, not like you. So I understand the message. Well, this monument that the Israelites set up also sent a very clear message. Joshua said this, In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Right, so in the future that's going to happen. Your kids are going to go, what's that pile of rocks over there, Dad? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan waters were cut off. And these stones are to be a memorial to the Israelite people forever. So the Israelites are here building a monument to God. And they're building it in somebody else's backyard. You know, they're not building it in the desert where they came from. They're building it right on the doorstep of Jericho. And that takes some serial, serious, serious faith. They haven't even fought a single battle yet. You know, it's not like the Americans were first to the moon and planted their flag and said, there we are, we've achieved. The Israelites hadn't had a single battle. They'd done nothing. And yet here they were putting up a permanent monument to say, this is ours, we've conquered. I don't know whether that takes arrogance or whether it takes an incredible amount of faith or a bit of both, but if you were the Canaanites, it certainly sent you a message, didn't it? And the message is clear here. This is no longer Canaanite land. In fact, it's not even Israel's land. This is God's land. That's the message that they were giving. This is God's land. There is only one God who rules over the whole earth and we are claiming it in his name. That's the message that monument sent. Now, some preachers like to build monuments to themselves. You know, Kenneth Copeland has his fleet of private jets. Uh, Robert Shuler had his crystal cathedral. I remember seeing clips of Robert Shuler... um, on TV saying to the people, God has told me that you have to raise three million more dollars for my cathedral or he's going to take me away. You know, God's going to kill me if you don't give me more money. Like, yeah, okay. They're monuments to themselves. I can't see that they're monuments to God. And see, the whole point of Israel's existence was not for them to say, hey, we are an awesome people. We are amazing. Look at us. The whole existence of Israel was so that people would look at God and say, what an awesome God they serve. And so that all the peoples of the earth would turn and worship Israel's God. In Isaiah, God says to Israel, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not that my salvation will end at the borders of Israel, but the whole earth. And in Habakkuk, he says, The earth will be filled with the the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory is going to cover the earth. You know, we have two monuments in in here. Uh, And they're not not the building. Um, They are the Lord's Supper. And they are baptism. Those are two monuments 
those two memorials that we celebrate because they send a message. They declare the wonder of God's salvation. Before his ascension, Jesus said to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Any monuments that we established are not to be for our glory, but for his glory. Now, the, large, the last part of this uh, story is rather weird. Let's have a look at Joshua towards the end of chapter 5. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of Yahweh, I have come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does the Lord have for his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, some scholars go, oh, that that seems rather brief. Maybe there's a bit missing. Maybe there was more said. Um, But there doesn't need to be more said. The message was very clear. The place where you are standing is holy. The word holy doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like when you look at me and you think how perfect I am. You know, I, I know that. That's all right, I know. <laughs> That's not what holy means. Holy doesn't mean you walk around with a halo on your head. Holy simply means set apart for God. And so the, the commander of the Lord's armies is saying to Joshua, take your shoes off because the place where you are standing, this land, the whole land of Canaan is set aside for me not your land, it's not the Canaanites' land, it's my land. That's the message he's giving. Now, the presence of this Mr. Man kind of, he looks a, bit, looks a bit different to us, but the people of Israel were expecting him. You see, back in the book of Exodus, God said this to uh, Moses. Oh, this is, going to be, this is going to be fun. I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. Good so far? Pay attention to him and listen to everything he says. Do not rebel against him, he will not forgive you, since my name is in him. If you, caref- if you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. This is the fun bit. Here we go. We ready? My angel will go ahead of you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. (laughs) And I will wipe them out. (laughs) Now, some scholars believe this is uh, an angel. Other scholars say that this is an appearance of God himself. There are occasions in the Old Testament where God appears in human form. Uh, Theologians, you're probably not going to be able to spell this word, call it a theophany, uh, which means a, a visual appearance of God, as in maybe this is God the Son, Jesus, who's appearing before his incarnation. But whoever he is, 
This is clearly a supernatural being who speaks with the voice of God. And by appearing at this moment, not only is he saying that this is my land, he's also saying, I am going to take care of this. He says, Joshua, I'm not on your side. You need to be on my side. In um, 1815, it's a long time ago, the British Duke of Wellington fought the Emperor Napoleon in the legendary Battle of Waterloo. You've probably heard of it. And after a stunning victory by Wellington, um, the news had to be signalled back to England. And the way they did this was that they sent a signal to a ship. The ship used their flags to send a message to someone on the coast. And then the person on the coast sent that message to someone on the next hill and so forth. And it was a very, very long process because you've got to raise different flags for each letter. And so they said, you know, W, E, L. Eventually it was Wellington, defeated. And then because you know what England's like, fog came in. And that was it. That was the end of the message. And the people in England were in mourning. This is terrible. This is a tragedy. Wellington has been defeated. And it took ages and ages until the fog lifted and then they could resend the message. Wellington defeated Napoleon. What a relief. You know, there was great sorrow at the cross when Jesus died and was buried. You know, there seemed to be this message, Jesus defeated. And there was like this fog for three days. But eventually the fog lifted and we got the message, Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus defeated death. But you know, sometimes we live like we're still in that fog. We kind of think we're defeated and we're not defeated. We have the victory even if we don't always see it. Through Christ we have the victory. See, the people of Israel at this time, they had everything to fear. Right? They were a tribe of people coming out of the desert. They had no supplies, they had no cities, all they had was the barest minimum weapons. And they were facing people who had the best military technology of their day. They had walled cities, they had trained armies, and humanly speaking, they were in big trouble. But they had the evidence of God's miraculous power with them, and they had the presence of the commander of the Lord, and so they had every reason to believe God's promise for what was ahead. And so do we. We read in Romans that if God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on at the end of this passage to describe us as more than conquerors. Israel were conquerors. They conquered the promised land. But we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Isn't that an exciting, exciting concept? <clears throat> Excuse me. This is an action-packed passage of Scripture. There is so much going on here. I mean, there's this incredible miracle that stamps Joshua as Moses' replacement. But in this case, it's led by the ark of God. And I love the fact that the priests were required to show more faith 
than the Israelites did at the original Red Sea crossing. I love how the priests had to step into those raging waters, trusting that God was as good as his word and the waters would stop when they got in. God is true to his word. Sometimes we have to be willing to get our feet wet. Sometimes we have to be willing to step out in faith in order to serve God, trusting that God is with us and trusting that we will succeed. Stepping out in faith before God acts rather than waiting for him. And then you have the Israelites setting up this monument to God's glory. Not only was this a celebration of a mighty victory, but this was a declaration of faith. Here they are setting up a statue, setting up a monument to declare that God owns this land before they'd even faced one enemy. That was an act of faith. That they did it in sight of their enemies, scant kilometres from the walls of Jericho, right in their enemy's face. The Canaanites must have been stunned. No wonder, no wonder they were defeated before they began. No wonder they were scared to get out and fight the Israelites. But it also brings us a challenge, doesn't it? What kind of monuments do we build in our church and in our lives? Are they monuments to us or to God? Are we more concerned with our standing or are we concerned with God's standing? And then finally, you have the appearance of the commander of the Lord's army. You see, this was not just going to be a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. It wasn't about whether the land belonged to the Canaanites or the Israelites. It was about whether the land belonged to God or to the devil. And God made his point. This is his fight. This is his land. It is holy. It is set apart for him to declare his greatness. And God doesn't want to come in and say, hey, I'm on your side. You do what you like and I'll be right there to support you. No, he says, I want you to come with me. Come in and be on my side. And together, you are more than conquerors. Let's pray. What an, what an amazing story, Lord. What an amazing series of events that must have really, really had an impact in the lives of the Israelites. They must have talked about that day as much as they talked about the Exodus. Because it sent an incredible message. The message was, Lord, that you are unbeatable. You are not some local deity. You are not some little minor God who, who controls a tiny area of land. But you are the Lord of the whole earth. You are God over all. And that's the message that we want to give, Lord. Lord, whether it's conquering um, our own fears or maybe persecution or whatever comes against us, Lord, but we are conquerors in your name. And Lord, we don't do that to build ourselves up. We don't do that to make ourselves feel good or to look good to others. Lord, we act in your name because we want you to be glorified. So help us, Lord, always to build monuments to you and never to ourselves. Lord, help us not to, to be going out there talking about, oh, this wonderful church we have. 
but this wonderful God we worship at this church. Lord, we don't want to be lifting up pastors and leaders and and other people in the church, Lord. We want to be using our lives to glorify you. So help us, Lord, to be a memorial to you. Help us, Lord, to be a people who act in faith and who always seek your glory. And Lord, help us to have faith when the going gets tough. Lord, when the fog seems to be in, when we can't seem to see the step ahead, Lord, help us to be willing to take that step of faith and move into the next step. Lord, we ask that everything we do will continue to give glory to your name. And we offer you our lives, we offer you our hearts in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. And extra thanks to those that have donated to us online. It's your generosity that enables us to continue our ministry to the local community and beyond. It's because of you that our ministry is possible. If you would also like to support us, visit ybc.church give. You can also access our website to find out more about our community by visiting yokinebaptist.church or by connecting with us on Facebook. If you've enjoyed listening to this message, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and God bless.